0: Good morning. As Reich said, um, our Bible reading this morning is from Ephesians chapter 1. We're reading verses 15 to 23. And if you're using one of the church Bibles, it's on page 947. And the section is entitled Thanksgiving and Prayer. For this reason... the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way.
1: It's a pretty amazing part of the Bible. Um, and last week you would have worked out In the time that we had we didn't really cover everything in a lot of detail and in particular if you're going back through verses 9 to 10 you'll find those are amazing verses similarly the last two verses of today's passage Um, and if you're stuck at home isolating trying to watch the feed thanks for persisting i know how frustrating that can be but how about we put that out of our mind think about the passage in front of us and pray that we would understand let's pray heavenly father we thank you that you have given us your word In English, that we can read and understand. Lord, we ask that as we look at your word, we pray that you would continue to humble us. We pray that you continue to grow and transform our understanding of you. Lord, we pray that we would see Jesus clearly, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What is your prayer? What's the prayer that you find yourself praying more often than not? In among all the things you pray and ask God for, what is the thing? that you ask God for behind your various prayers behind your many requests what is it that you want when you're praying to God what's the sum of all your individual prayers what does it amount to does it sum up as wanting security in life does it come down to wanting good health or maybe safety for your family does it come down to just wanting some more comfort or happiness What is it that sits behind all your prayers? That's the question to be thinking about as we look at Paul's prayer in this passage. That's the question that we'll come back to. If you've got a sermon outline, you'll see we'll come back to that. What is your prayer? Um, When you look across the passage that's in front of us, we see um, Paul tells the Ephesians that he's praying for them. And as he shares what he prays for them, he overflows in praise again to God, for God's power, the amazing power of God. So you see two things in the passage. Firstly, you see Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. And secondly, you see another reminder of the power of God. But before we get into the passage, let's think a little bit about the context. Paul writing to the Ephesians, think a little bit about Ephesians, these people. And I'm not going to put these passages on the screen behind me, but I'll give you the references. If you can find the book of Acts, this is where you do your own homework those who are working your way through Colossians at the same time, you'll see overlap with today's passage yet again. But if you can find Acts chapters 18 and just flick through to chapter 20. So Luke wrote the gospel of Luke and then he wrote Acts as his sequel. And when you're reading through Acts chapters 18, 19 and 20, you get this interaction where Luke tells us what happened in Ephesus. And so when you come to Um, Luke chapter 18, verse 19 through to 21, you see that Paul had this really short stay in Ephesus and he wants to return, he wants to come back. Then you come to Acts chapter 19, verse 1, picking it up from there, Luke tells us about Paul's return to Ephesus. When he arrives, he finds disciples there, but they're disciples that have kind of an incomplete understanding of the gospel. They've had the baptism of John, but they haven't yet received the Holy Spirit. And Luke um, tells us that when Paul placed his hands on them and prayed for them, they received the Holy Spirit and they started speaking in tongues. They spoke in tongues when they received the Holy Spirit. It's a significant event. It's kind of like this outward demonstration of the fact that God's at work in them, this outward sign of the power of God. This baptism by the Spirit, this incident, it makes you think of what happened to the predominantly Jewish group of people in in. Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem, the day of Pentecost, when all that speaking in tongues happened. Except that in Acts chapter 2, it was the Jews. Here it's mixed, maybe more Gentiles than Jews. And slightly curious that this sort of public display of God's power would happen here in Ephesus, because it's not what Luke records in some of the other places that Paul worked his way through. So Paul travels and moves through a number of different towns and cities. If you flick back two chapters earlier, I know we're meant to be in Ephesians. This is your background work. If you look at Acts chapter 17, you'll read there about the way that Paul came into Thessalonica. Yes, there were converts there, but there's no record of speaking in tongues or anything. Then he moves on to Berea in chapter 17, verse 10. Again, no mention of speaking in tongues in Berea. Then he goes on to Athens in 17, verse 16. We're told that city was full of idols, Paul um, reasoned with people. And while many did not believe, a few did, but there's no mention of tongues again. And then in 18 verse 1, he comes to Corinth. And again, you guessed it, Luke doesn't record this sort of public outward demonstration of the power of God, which he records for you in Ephesus. And it's slightly curious that God would show his power in that way in Ephesus. Um, There's other tangible signs of the power of God in Ephesus. So if you look at Acts chapter 19, you will discover Paul began teaching in the synagogue for a period of 3 months preaching the kingdom of God, and there was opposition from the Jews that led him to abandon his time in the synagogue and take up his teaching in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. He kept teaching there for 2 years, we're told. And the message of the kingdom was heard all over Asia. Maybe this is the kind of the area that this letter is meant to circulate among. But in Ephesus, Paul's preaching was accompanied by miracles. So if you look at Acts 19, verses 11 and 12, we're told that even handkerchiefs and aprons which touched Paul were taken to the sick and they were cured and evil spirits left people. That's exceptional. Slightly odd. Unexpected. But you look at that and God chose to show these outward demonstrations of his power in Ephesus. Still in Acts chapter 19, you discover that some local Jews went around attempting kind of copycat miracles. So 19 verse 14, for example. And Luke tells us about these this slightly humorous account of how an evil spirit sent them all packing, naked and bleeding. You kind of chuckle a bit at it. Luke tells us when others heard of this in 19 verse 17, they were, they were seized with fear and the name of Jesus was held in high honor. I wonder if... God chose to work these outward signs of God's power in Ephesus because of the type of city that it was. So if you look up um, a kid's encyclopedia online, the National Geographic online, you'll discover one of the seven wonders of the world, it's number three, was there in Ephesus. The great temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana, a massive temple overshadowing the rest of the city. The temple would have, you know, drawn tourists and um, a trade in idols and trinkets. There would have been all sorts of religious ceremonies going on. And within Ephesus, the temple would have been the centre of worship of the pagan goddess Diana and all the superstitions that came along with that. Is that perhaps why God chose to work in the way that he did in Ephesus with these sort of outward demonstrations of the power of God? Was it that the superstitious pagan diana worshiping city needed this maybe in acts chapter 19 verse 19 we read that many people believed some who practiced sorcery they went and burnt their scrolls and luke tells us in 19 verse 20 in this way the power of the lord uh, the power of the lord spread widely The, the word of the lord spread widely and grew in power so luke shows us the power of god at work in ephesus and spreading the gospel message spreading out the power of god changing hearts changing minds, turning pagan people into believers in Christ. The second half of um, Acts chapter 19, we read about the riot in Ephesus. Demetrius the silversmith, who made a living making these these things for the shrines of Artemis, he called everyone together and started a riot um, because the power of God was threatening his business. The more you dig around and attempt to understand the context of Ephesus, I think the more it makes sense that God would choose to act in the way that he did in Ephesus. But it's in this context that God chooses to save people by his power. And the passage we're reading now in in Ephesians, we see that Paul prays for the Ephesian Christians and reminds them of the power of God that is still at work in them. The amazing power of God that they've witnessed. And the real power of God in Ephesus, it wasn't all those outward things. It was the conversion of souls, turning people back to God, transforming hearts. The real power of God in Ephesus was seeing pagan, idol-worshiping, superstitious, superstitious sorcerers become repentant followers of Jesus. Paul prays for the Ephesians. He gives thanks that God has worked in that way in them. And so then look at the passage. You've got all that context. Ephesians one verse 15 for this reason looking back to what we looked at last week the way we're blessed in the heavenly realms for this reason ever since i've heard about your faith in the lord jesus and your love for all god's people i've not stopped giving thanks for you remembering you in my prayers so paul thanks god for working in the ephesians and paul's awareness of what god's done in the ephesians it's fueled by everything that we saw last week in verses one to fourteen and so he says in verse 15, for this reason, therefore, in the light of all that you saw last week, that great big long sentence, that starts from verse 3. Remember back in verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And you work your way through verse 4 to 14, it goes on to spell how, spell out how Christians are blessed, we're chosen, we're adopted, we're redeemed, we're forgiven, we're shown God's plans and purposes, we're secure in Christ. Where beneficiary is the fact that God has put everything, or is putting everything under Jesus. And verse fifteen, for this reason, since I heard about your faith in Christ, I haven't stopped giving thanks for you. He says, since the day I heard about it, since I heard that you were in Christ, united with us, standing firm in the faith, adopted into God's people. Since that day, He hasn't stopped giving thanks for the power of God that's at work in them to change them like that. It's a miracle that God would bring anyone to put their trust in Jesus, and he's done it to the Ephesians. So Paul tells them his prayer, and then he tells them, he gives thanks to God for the way that God's working in them, and he prays that God would continue to work, continue to work with the same power. So verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. God is so far beyond us, so impossible for us to understand, so powerful, so wise, so sovereign and so holy. There will always be more for us to learn. And he's praying for the Ephesians that God would be at work in them so they would continue to grow in knowing God. And it's the kind of prayer that applies to us as well. Knowing God better is something which will only happen as God works by the power of his Holy Spirit. It's his work in us. And Paul spells out three particular things that he's praying they would come to know. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and the incomparably great power for us who believe. This hope, if you think about the Ephesians into all their sorcery and all the, you know, Doubt and uncertainty that comes with that. In contrast, Paul's praying for these Christians in Ephesus that they would know the hope that they have. It's theirs. That they'd know the riches of the glorious inheritance, that they'd know God's power. Um, Living under the shadow of the temple of Artemis, surrounded by idols and trinkets, I expect there would be, with this superstition, this uncertainty, not knowing what the future will hold, not knowing if you're good enough, not knowing if you've offered enough sacrifices. In contrast, this prayer is that you would know the certainty of forgiveness, the sure and certain hope for the future, certainty that rests on the fact that Jesus has finished his work. No one can come between you and God. That's that kind of hope. So Paul, thanks God for, the, the, for working in the Ephesians. He prays that God would continue to work in them, transforming them, opening their eyes. Isn't that the kind of prayer... That we should be praying? Isn't that the thing that should be behind all your prayers? This concern to see everyone knowing Jesus, living for him. Isn't that how we ought to be praying for the members of our family, for our friends? Shouldn't that be the prayer that sits behind or be the sum of all our prayers and our concerns? We don't live in Ephesus. Our situation is very different. I don't see a massive great temple to Artemis, but You do see massive great shopping malls, temples to materialism. We live under the shadow of those. We live under the shadow of large sports stadiums, huge office blocks, luxurious homes, inspirational careers. We pay our respects to each of those things, those things we value. We offer ourselves in the service of the economy. We devote ourselves to the pursuit of materialism. Live to impress other people and as you do that, you fill your life with insecurity and uncertainty. It's only the power of God that can change our hearts and make us followers of Jesus. It's only the power of God that can open the eyes of your hearts, like He did the Ephesians. So shouldn't that make us pray in this way? For us, it seems growing and knowing God is tied up in reading God's word. It's the way, the means God uses to grow our knowledge of him. And so last week, I encouraged you heavily to do that, to be reading the Bible for yourself. And so again, this week, I'll encourage you the same way. Keep God's word open. That's the way God works in us, transforming our minds and our hearts. So we're looking at these few verses in Ephesians. Paul thanks God for working in Ephesians. He prays that God would continue to work in them by that same power so that they would know him better. And his prayer overflows into this reminder of the power of God. And so you pick it up, second half of verse 19 of chapter one. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. That power, that workiness, is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule, and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked not only in the present age but also in the age to come. The power of God at work in someone who becomes a follower of Jesus is the same power by which God raised Jesus from the dead. Not only that, it's the same power by which he raised Jesus as ruler over everything. The power of God, that power of God is what works in us to open our eyes, to see the truth. It's the same power God used to raise Jesus and seat him at his right hand. Um, if you look down in verse twenty two, and God raised all things placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Not only is that a reminder in verses 20 and 23, not only is it a reminder of God's power, it's yet another reminder that in Christ we have every spiritual blessing as the church of God. Those two verses you can dig into the Greek. They're not simple. You've got to read them in the context of the passage. As Christ's church, we're central to God's plans and his purposes. We are the result of God's power at work. Jesus is placed over everything, seems to me, for the benefit of the church. He fills the church. He's been made head over everything for his church, which he completes. It's huge language. We'll come back to think about church again, deeper into Ephesians, because it just keeps rolling. But for now... Look at Paul's description of the power of God and let it sink in. Go back again to the second half of verse 19. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. There's no greater power than the power of God by which he raised Jesus from dead and seated him, everything under him, put him over everything. And as Christians, God is at work in you with that power. You've got nothing to fear. You already have every spiritual blessing in Christ. You've been included in this plan from eternity to eternity to see everything under Christ. So back to where we started, what is your prayer? What is the thing that you find yourself asking God for more than anything else? Behind all the prayers you pray, all the requests you make, what is it that you really want? Is it security in this life? Is it health? Is it comfort? Is it happiness? What's the prayer that sits behind everything you pray? When you look at Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, shouldn't that be our prayer? Isn't this the Christian's prayer? Shouldn't our prayer be more than anything else that we and those who are dear to us would know God and know God's power at work in us? Shouldn't our prayer be that the power of God would be at work transforming lives? When you open God's word like we're doing, and you read it, you understand what it's saying, it does cause you to refocus, doesn't it? Otherwise, you can become distracted and put your hope in things that don't matter, chase after materialism or the career or health or whatever it might be. What really matters is being part of God's people, his church. He's done everything to see that happen. What really matters is the power of God at work. So how about we pray for each other in this way? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for who you are and for every blessing that is ours in Christ. We thank you for the way that you have worked to raise Jesus from the dead, to seat him over everything for your church. Lord, thank you for working in us by your power to change us and bring us to faith in Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would continue to work in us, to open the eyes of our hearts so that we would know and appreciate all that you have done in Jesus, so that we would keep growing to know him better. And Father, we pray also that you would be at work in the hearts and minds of family members and friends, so that we would see your power change their lives too, so that we would see Christ over all. And we pray in his name. Amen.